then they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! <laughs>
You can tell them in the country, tell them in the town. The miners down in Mingo laid their shovels down. We won't pull another pillow out another ton. Or lift another finger till the union we have won. Stand up, boys, let the bosses know. Turn your buckets over, turn your lanterns low. There's fire in our hearts and fire in our soul. But there ain't gonna be no fire in the hole. Good morning, everybody. Labor and Love Radio coming at you from Mutiny Radio, 2781 21st Street. Played our opening set there. Got started a little late. Not sure why that happened. I think I got so involved in my research here for the show that uh, the time just got me. I looked up and it was 10.03. We're starting a little late today. Welcome to our... Labor Day show, and today we'll talk about labor in action. Stewardesses, how did stewardesses defeat the very strict requirements for their job? Unrealistic. What does Putin have have in common with Trump. Well, they're both attacking their working people. Student loans, now the biggest source of debt 
in the country, outstripping credit cards. August 29, 1968. Chicano students walk out of school in protest to the Vietnam War and the, and to strengthen the Chicano liberal <clears throat> civil rights struggle. <clears throat> what was that about? Teacher strikes. Again, teachers are all over the country are rising up. Places you would least expect it. But it's happening. We just heard the prophets of rage there. Let's start it. We had Hazel Dickens singing about fire in the hole. Of course, referring to um, fires that start down in the mine and trap the workers there. Uh, and a, a union effort to prevent that. And before that, we had the prophets of rage. Tom Morello, Chuck D, and their associates. A rap, hip-hop, rock super group, if there ever was one. And before that, just reminding you, you're going to have to serve somebody. Might be the devil, might be the Lord, might be capital, might be labor. But what you're going to have to do is serve somebody from... Bob Dylan. Good morning, everybody. This is Labor and Love Radio, where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, another person worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, that is, you're probably on the menu. More about that a little later. There was a very provocative article published in Harper's Magazine this week, entitled, Labor's Last Stand. Well, no, it wasn't quite that, but we'll, we'll get on to that. Finally, never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you, because that's all they think of you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Good morning, Solina. Good morning, everybody out there. You know who you are. Good morning, Vita. Good morning, Charlie. Good morning, all my people, all my fans, <laughs> such as they may be. Okay, Labor and Love Radio, we're going to first look at Labor Day and where it came from. And this is, of all places, an article in the Business Insider. Labor Day became a federal holiday in 1894 after the Pullman strike. The strike led to 30 deaths and millions of dollars in damage. The conflict prompted Congress and U.S. President Grover Cleveland to establish the holiday. And this guy, Aene Kane, writes, Labor Day tends to be a pretty low-key U.S. holiday, the unofficial end of summer, 
History behind the day is far more dramatic. U.S. President Glover Cleveland signed the holiday into law just days after federal troops brought down the bloody Pullman strike in 1894. Now, on this show, we covered the Great Upheaval, which was the first nationwide uh, labor action, virtually stopped all the railroads all over the country. In certain places like St. Louis and New Orleans, Workers took over the machinery of governance and ran the cities. Um, this was an aftermath to that. There was the the Haymarket affair where police threw a bomb to... to policemen threw a bomb to cause a riot the Chicago 8 people who were were hung who hadn't even been near the place one of them was Albert Parsons husband of one of the labor cards Lucy Parsons at any rate this was after that the small town of Pullman engineer and industrialist George Pullman's workers all lived in company owned buildings Pullman himself resided in a mansion. Managers resided in houses. Skilled workers lived in small apartments and laborers stayed in barracks. Housing conditions were highly stratified. The town was sanitary and safe and even included paved streets and stores. Then came the economic depression of the 1890s. Pullman made a decision to cut wages. In a sense, workers throughout Chicago and the country at large were in the same boat as the Pullman employees. Wages dropped across the board and prices fell. However, even after cutting pay by nearly 30%, Pullman refused to lower the rent on the company-owned buildings and the prices in the company-owned stores. Uh, Indiana University professor, labor historian Richard Schneeroff, who edited the Pullman strike in the crisis of the 1890s, claims that this strike was a culmination of labor actions that that had been going on all through the 1800s came to a head in 1877. So it became harder and harder for Pullman workers to support their families. You're losing a third off your wages, but you still have to pay the same prices for rental and food. Sympathy for the plight spread throughout the city. Even the Chicago police took up collections for those affected. The strike began May 11, 1894, with the full support of the American Railroad Union and its leader at that time, Eugene Victor Dibbs. Different groups stepped in to intervene. 
the Chicago Civic Foundations, and the U.S. Conference of Mayors. They told Pullman this wasn't going to work, but he was unmoved. He refused to even meet with them. He just wouldn't talk, Schneiroff said. He refused. Until the age of Reagan, this was the last great solution where a leading capitalist could get away with that. Pullman's stance earned him widespread rebuke. Even fellow business mogul and Republican kingmaker politician Mark Hanna called him a damn fool for refusing to meet with his men. Chicago Mayor John Hopkins loathed Pullman, having previously owned a business in the rail car magnate's arcade building. Local police did little to quell the unrest. Debs, leader of the American Railroad Union, declared that the ARU members would no longer work on trains that included Pullman cars. The move would be widely criticized by other labor groups and the press, and the boycott would end up bringing railroads west of Chicago to a standstill. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, 125,000 workers across 29 railroad companies quit their jobs rather than break the boycott. So the railroad companies hired replacement workers. When the crowds began running, when they began running the trains, crowds of railroad workers would try to form lines and blockades to stop them from running. There was a lot of sympathy from people. They'd come out and try to help the railroad workers stop the trains. They might even be initiators, standing in front of the tracks and chucking pieces of coal and rocks and pieces of wood. Then there would be lots of kids, lots of teenagers, people out of work, or just hanging around and looking to join the, fight, the fun. The Chicago Managers Association, a group that represented 26 Chicago railroad companies, began to plan a counterattack. They asked Attorney General to inter Richard Olney to intervene. Indianapolis federal courts granted him an injunction against the strike on the grounds that law and order had broken down in Chicago. Pro-labor Illinois Governor John Peter Altgelt refused to authorize President Cleveland to send in federal troops, asserting that allegations of societal breakdown had been grossly exaggerated. But the federal government ultimately sent in soldiers to enforce the injunction. Meanwhile, the General Managers Association was able to deputize federal marshals to help put down the strike. The whole thing was most one-sided biased action on the part of the federal government in a labor dispute that you could think of. Violence raised it, raged as Chicago swelled with soldiers and strikers clashed with troops on railroads across the West. 30 people died in the chaos. 
riots and sabotage caused by the strike ultimately cost $80 million in damages. There's the business insider talking. <laughs> Shnerov said Cleveland's decision to declare Labor Day as a holiday for workers must likely a move meant to please his constituents after the controversial handling of the strike. The president was a Democrat, and most urban laborers at the time were Catholic Democrats. It's also part of the growing legitimacy of labor unions in the country, he said. Unions were becoming very popular with working people. Even if they couldn't join a union, the idea of a union was popular. Okay, my note, uh, that's what's happening now. People, the idea of union is very popular. People understand that unions, that working together and that cooperating are the way to make our lives better. Labor Day wasn't the only consequence of the strike. Debs was arrested and jailed for six months. The American Railroad Union fell apart. Pullman died of a heart attack three years after the riots. Investigators were launched over the incident and found that Pullman was partly to blame for what happened. Partly? Partly to blame? These movements help to boost popular opinion of the labor But that idea has faded in recent years. The idea that free competition and the free and the self-regulating market are sufficient and that working people shouldn't have the right to combine and form unions. This idea has become dominant again since the 1980s, Schnerov said. Most people would still join a union if it wasn't so damn hard. Okay, that's where Labor Day comes from. All over the world, of course, people celebrate Labor Day on May Day, May 1st. And that's a result of the Pullman, the, pardon me, the Homestead Action in 1886. Right. Let's check out some music. And oh, I wanted to play one by Aretha, but let's start with this. This is Mr. Trump.
Aretha Franklin.
goodbye yesterday I'll be back baby Honey by and by That's why I've waited So doggone long uh-huh. Get to see how happy I am Because the man is making it home Yeah, we're celebrating Aretha, and we're also celebrating Hazel Dickens today. Fly away, little pretty bird. There's one singer today who recalls the way country music originally sounded before there was a commercial industry. It's probably Hazel Dickens. Oh, beautiful hills of Galilee amid whose I always sang because we grew up uh, that way. We grew up with a lot of singing and uh, music because there was singing in the church. Just a few old keepsakes. It's a kind of rear back and let it fly. 
almost bluegrassy kind of wail that just cuts through those airwaves like a hot knife through butter. I mean, it just is so penetrating. I'm surprised that they Nashville, Tennessee music journalist Robert Orman describes Dickens as a quintessential mountain singer. She is rightly revered in Washington at the Smithsonian as a, as a living example of Appalachian singing. Hazel Dickens has been making soul-piercing mountain music for as long as she can remember. Dickens grew up in Mercer County in a large family that was poor. And my mother was a West Virginia mountain woman. She never had anything but really hard luck and hard times. She describes life with her parents and 11 brothers and sisters as primitive. With the uh, pot-bellied stove and the oil lamps and the feather beds, your mother did all the cooking. She, she baked bread like between two and three times a day, morning, noon, and night. In the beginning, she didn't have a washing machine. She washed on a scrub board with stove irons, no electricity. So you're talking bare bones. <laughs> hills of home, hills of home. Dickens left home in her late teens, following some of her siblings to Baltimore to find work in the city's shipyards and factories. It was a tough transition for a teenager from southern West Virginia who'd lived a sheltered life. It was all very nerve-wracking for me because not only was I learning to be socialized, <laughs> I was learning how to, you know, interact with the people I worked with. And since I never had a job doing that, it was a, a real learning experience. And the same was with uh, getting into the music, entering to a, a different culture, meeting new people, learning to be a grown-up, to get along in the workplace, how to find a job, um, and then learning how to relate to my siblings on a grown-up level. Oh, it seems life's troubles and trials get harder and harder to mend. It was the 1950s when many young people from Appalachia migrated to major cities seeking employment. These hillbillies socialized with each other, often spending time together doing what they did back home, playing music. That's how Dickens got her start. I think it was my lifeline, and I think that if I had not gone that direction, uh, I really don't know what would have happened to me. Um, I think about it now in those serious terms I didn't used to, but I think it, um, it just gave me a new life. It gave me the only way that I had of expressing myself, and I had a lot of stuff inside me to express, but that was the way that I did it. I think that it was sort of like uh, when other people are called to do things, to be a teacher, to be a, uh, a minister or whatever, I think it was my calling. Only the Early on, Dickens sang and played bass with a band. She began developing her songwriting skills when she became a professional musician and needed to write some verses to go along with a chorus that someone else had penned. The verses came very easily because it was a hymn. And I just think of stuff that my father had said <laughs> in the church when he preached. But the next one came a little harder because it was all from my, my head. And, and um, 
It was called Won't You Come and Sing for Me? And it was about people around the Primitive Baptist Church when the service would end and everybody would shake hands or hug each other and ask them to go home with them for dinner. And, uh, and I always liked that scene about the church that stood out in my mind more than anything else, more than the preaching, actually. I said goodbye to that plain mining town. The backbone of Dickens' music has come from the traditions she grew up with, old-time country and gospel. And through her songwriting, Dickens brought her West Virginia roots to the city, creating songs about her childhood experiences and her family. When you hear Hazel, that craggy, emotive uh, delivery, that, I think, when you're hearing that, I think, the, I think you're hearing the 19th century, the mountains in the 19th century, and that's what Hazel has preserved so remarkably and so emotionally. Well, there's more to her than powder and pain. In the 1960s and 70s, Dickens made a name for herself in bluegrass with partner Alice Gerard, two of the first women to find success in the genre. Dickens and Gerard were role models for other female singers, including Emmy Lou Harris. It was those records, those three records they made together, that really solidified Hazel and her songs uh, as, as, as something important. Once I had a daddy, and he worked down in a hole. Work is barely finished till it's time to start another day. If your moderate to severe ulcerative colitis This is the Labor and Love Show. We're in the middle of a documentary about the life of Hazel Dickens. So far they haven't mentioned much about labor and about strikes. That's what Hazel Dickens was all about. Okay, well, that was the beginning of Hazel Dickens singing The Rebel Girl, a song about Elizabeth Gurley Flynn that uh, none other than Joe Hill wrote. We'll see if we can get it back for you. Right now, this is Labor and Love Radio. We're almost at the top of the hour. And it's time to talk about the Chicano Moratorium. And again, we're talking about Labor and Labor Day. This was a walkout in 1970, which you may or may not know about, in East Los Angeles. 
30,000, okay, 30,000 young people marched in protest of the Vietnam War and of police brutality and of the lack of opportunity for young Chicano students. The Chicano Moratorium. Thousand Chicanos marched through the streets of East LA that day. It was meant to be a peaceful anti-war demonstration, but within a couple of hours, it looked like a war zone. 200 people were arrested, 60 were wounded, and four killed. Wait, hold on a second. Let's rewind for a minute. It was 1970, it was the Vietnam War, and President Nixon had just intensified the war, even after he said he would end it. Thousands of American soldiers were returning home in caskets, and one community started to notice a pattern. Mexican Americans, who were just 10% of the population in southwestern states, were 20% of those killed in combat. This sparked a movement in defense of Latinx lives. It wasn't exactly a Black Lives Matter moment, no two movements in history are the same, but it was the beginning of a Latinx-led push for civil rights, and part of U.S. history that many in the community are making sure is not forgotten four decades later. Latinos were being sent uh, to the front lines uh, deliberately, were lower achievers in the eyes of the government, but when it came to war and the need for cannon fodder, were prime uh, meat. This is Rosalio Munoz. He was an outspoken student leader back then and co-founder of the Chicano Moratorium, an organized effort to mobilize Mexican-Americans and Chicanos to oppose the Vietnam War. The disproportionate death rate of Chicanos in Vietnam, which was the primary motivation, was part of a whole web of oppression, higher dropout rates, more people going to prisons. So on August 29, 1970, they decided to march. It became the largest anti-war action by any ethnic group in the United States. Uh, it, was a, it was a wonderful thing. And it, 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 subliminally, it got covered over by the brutal violence that followed an hour or two hours earlier. I remember Ruben Salazar came up to me in the middle of the march and giving me a huge abrazo and saying, congratulations, you did it. Salazar was a columnist for the LA Times, reporting on issues that mattered to the Chicano community. He was also a leading voice in the community's anti-war movement. He went to the moratorium march that day, and when the protest turned violent, Salazar ducked into a local bar. A police officer had fired a tear gas canister at the bar's entrance. The police claimed the canister struck Salazar in the head and killed him instantly. But a lot of people questioned the circumstances that ended his life. And whether it was a tear gas projectile, whether it was another shot, there's many contradictions. If he were hit by a tear gas projectile, why was his head, head still intact? It was a tremendous loss to us. And although he died unjustly, he left his vision for better education and justice for Mexican-Americans as a legacy uh, uh, for the community. The Chicano Moratorium is a significant event in Ellie's history, but I didn't hear about it until an ethnic studies class in college. All of that was more than a decade ago. So I began to wonder, maybe things had changed. I went back to where it all went down, East LA, to see if other people had heard about the Chicano Moratorium. Have you ever heard something that took place around here called the Chicano Moratorium? 
No, I haven't. Have you ever heard of something called the Chicano Moratorium? No, I have not. Actually, that's new news for me. What do you think it is just by putting the two words Chicano together? Chicano Moratorium, you said? I don't know, an event that has to do with Chicanos. <laughs> so you've been here 57 years and never heard of Chicano no, Moratorium? No, I haven't. But for Rosalio Muñoz, that doesn't mean it didn't have an impact. Our, our primary goal was to raise uh, opposition to the war and support for more education uh, and more participation for civil rights and social justice. And we accomplished that. Okay, the Chicano Moratorium, <clears throat> which was kind of the beginning of another wave of uh, Chicano protest and led to things like bilingual education, led to ballots being printed in different languages here in California so people could understand what they were voting for, which led to a whole series of actions and ultimately to a lot of people getting involved, a lot of people being able to go to university, for example, and become professionals to uh, go back to the community and help help their people. Chicano Moratorium, August 29th, 1968. This is the B, and this is the Labor and Love Show. We're just about to turn the corner, so let's take a little break, be back on the other side. Music by Ali Akbar Khan.
born one morning, it was drizzling rain. Fighting and trouble are my middle name. I was raised in the cane break by an old mama lion. Can't no high-toned woman make me walk the line. You load the 16 tons. What a gift. Another day older and deeper than death. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. If you see me coming, better step aside. A lot of men didn't. A lot of men died. One fist of iron, the other of steel. If the right one don't get you, then the left one will. You load the 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older and deeper in depth. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. was one of the all so that was uh, Ernie Ford with a kind of a <clears throat> light-hearted song but with a very serious and very sad basis he owes his so to the company stowed don't we all all of us have to keep working all of us have to have jobs all of us have to earn enough money to survive. When did it ever get that you had to have money to survive? This pernicious idea of the market determining everything. The market is merely a playground for the heavy hitters to go out and steal from workers like us. I mentioned at the beginning of the show uh, the story of, uh, let's go on the labor beat now. The labor beat typically is labor stories that I've found all through the week. And um, this one is about airline stewardesses, as you may or may not know. Uh, airline stewardesses were um, under a lot of restrictions um, and could be fired for reasons like uh, they weren't pretty enough or they were too old or they were pregnant or they were married. And it was um, a woman named Dusty Rhodes, believe it or not. <laughs> Dusty Rhodes who led uh, airline stewardesses and stewards, I, I suppose. Let's see. She, so she led them in, in unionizing and uh, resisting and changing these, these laws. Uh, not laws, they, I mean, they weren't... Here's one. UTLA votes 98% yes to strike. Uh, 
with over 81% of members casting their votes. So LA teachers are getting ready to strike and one of the big problems is charter schools in Los Angeles. And uh, we have a story about charter schools here. Listen to Dire Straits for a minute.
was a little bit of uh, Dire Straits. That ain't working. That's the way you do it. The money for nothing and the chicks for free. So let's let's go back on the labor beat here. For uh, many, many years, uh, airline stewardesses were kind of treated as pretty models um, to the clients. They they couldn't get too old, they couldn't get too heavy, they couldn't get pregnant, they couldn't get married. Let's listen to this about how a woman named Dusty Rhodes began a reaction in the... First, I thought it was American Airlines. Then I realized it's an industry. It was almost like, open your mouth, let me check your teeth like a horse. over the hill? Goodbye. Unless we stand up and fight for it, nobody else is. R-O-A-D-S. We were talking about charter schools a minute ago. Charter schools are one of the main reasons that teachers, UTLA, teachers in Los Angeles, are uh, voting to strike. And this is a story of a Palmdale charter school that borrowed ne nearly $30 million to build a new campus. Then it got shut down. Now, it's not a simple story. The people who were sponsoring the school were Muslim people. And the Palmdale School District, District granted them a charter, set up a charter, and, and they got a loan. They started to build the school. But then amid charges of money, you know, uh, people skimming money off the top, the school leased space from a mosque owned by the American Islamic Institute of Antelope Valley, a religious organization run by the charter's founder and its executive director. Uh, guidance is ties to the mosque and the thin partitions erected to separate its students from a prayer room through criticism from the ACLU. They wanted a wall between church and state. Nevertheless, the school grew. 
It had opened with 65 students, but last year had about 900. Palmdale School Board consistently voted to keep it open. But according to financial documents that detailed the terms, investors were warned that guidance had been the subject of several inquiries by the school district, including one regarding invalid or improper teacher credentials. It is not uncommon for California charter schools to borrow money through bonds to build campuses. But unlike public school districts, they don't have access to additional public revenue streams such as parcel taxes. Although its student scores on one state English exam in 2017 were roughly comparable to their peers in the district, math was a different story. None of the charter school's 11th graders tested at grade level. Its dropout rate was about 23%. Anyway, this is what happens when you have charter schools. You have corruption. <laughs> In this case, the guy was skimming money, or he's accused of, of skimming money. You have corruption. When you put someone in a situation where they can skim off money or where they can make decisions that make them richer, they're going to do it. Why wouldn't you? Yes, indeed. Why wouldn't you? Okay. Here's a Texas, Texas um, representative, a guy named Beto O'Hara, I believe, um, who's running against Ted Cruz in Texas for Ted Cruz's uh, Senate seat. So let's see what he says when he was asked by constituents or let's see what he says about the NFL and people needing to take a knee. He was asked, his answer I kind of wanted to know how you personally felt about how disrespectful it is, like you had the NFL players kneeling during the national anthems. I wanted to know if you found that disrespectful to our country, to our veterans, and anybody related to that. It just, I find it incredibly frustrating that people seem to be okay with that. And I would just like to hear your input. Thank you. Thanks for a great question. Again, on a really tough issue that if we don't talk about is not going to get better. And the question is, how do you feel about NFL players who take a knee during the national anthem and is it disrespectful to this country to the flag to service members who are right there tonight where it is tonight in afghanistan and those former service members retirees and veterans who are here with us today thank you each for your service um my my short answer is no i don't think it's disrespectful here's my my longer answer but i'm gonna try to try to make sure that i get this right uh, because i think it's a really important question and in the middle of Beto's answer. Beto's running for the Senate in the state of Texas. 
So we'll get back to it right now. People, reasonable people can disagree on this issue. Let's begin there. And it makes them no less American to come down on a different conclusion on this issue, right? Um, you can feel as a young man does, you can feel as I do, you're every bit as American all the same. Um, but I'm reminded, somebody mentioned reading the, the Taylor Branch book. Um, you did. Um, Parting the Waters and the King Years. And, and when you read that book and find out what Dr. King and this nonviolent, peaceful movement to secure better, because they didn't get full, civil rights for their fellow Americans, the challenges that they faced, those who died in Philadelphia, Mississippi, for the crime of trying to be a man, trying to be a woman in this country, um, the, the young girls who died in the church bombing, um, those who were beaten within an inch of their life crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama with John Lewis, um, those who were punched in the face, spat upon, dragged out by their collar at the Woolworth lunch counter for sitting with white people at the same lunch counter in the same country where their fathers may have bled the same blood on the battlefields of Omaha Beach or Okinawa or anywhere that anyone ever served this country. Um, the freedoms that we have were purchased not just by those in uniform, and they definitely were, but also by those who took their lives into their hands riding those Greyhound buses, the Freedom Riders in the Deep South in the 1960s, who knew full well that they would be arrested, and they were serving time in the Mississippi State Penitentiary. Um, Rosa Parks getting from the back of the bus to the front of the bus. Peaceful, nonviolent protests, including taking a knee at a football game to point out that black men unarmed, black teenagers unarmed, and black children unarmed are being killed at a frightening level right now, including by members of law enforcement without accountability and without justice. And this problem, as grave as it is, is not going to fix itself. And they're frustrated, frankly, with people like me and those in positions of public trust and power who have been unable to resolve this or bring justice for what has been done and to stop it from continuing to happen in this country. And so nonviolently, peacefully, while the eyes of this country are watching these games, they take a knee to bring our attention and our focus to this problem to ensure that we fix it. That is why they are doing it. And I can think of nothing more American than to peacefully stand up or take a knee for your rights anytime, anywhere, any place. So thank you very much for asking the question. I appreciate it. Beto Rorick fields a question. Is it okay to take a knee? How do you feel about that? And he says, there's nothing more American than taking a knee. Nothing more American than taking a knee. Let's get on now with uh, teachers. Okay, in Los Angeles just voted uh, 98% to okay a strike by their union with 80% of teachers voting. That in itself is a miracle in San Francisco when there's not a big issue like a strike vote or something. Uh, it's amazing to get uh, 
10, 15, 20%. We just elected a new president who ran unopposed, by the way, but only six or 700 people even bothered to vote out of, what, 3,000 teachers, I believe. This is an article from Labor Notes. Teachers carry strike spirit into new year. What's ahead for the Red for Ed movement? This spring, teachers mobilized in an unprecedented scale in West Virginia, Oklahoma, Kentucky, Arizona, North Carolina, and Colorado. They protested, walked out, even held statewide strikes. Even in states with limited to no collective bargaining rights where school unions have traditionally focused on state policies. Teachers saw just how powerful they can be when they act collectively. But now with midterm elections coming up, the impulse to turn toward electoral politics presents a challenge. Will members go back to thinking that power resides mainly in electrical, electoral politics? Or will their newborn rank and file movement be able to use ballot measures and elections to expand their networks at the grassroots? Okay, that's a Labor Notes article. Check it out. Los Angeles is the biggest school district in the country since New York districts are broken up into smaller ones. Working class history. Let's see what happened on this state. Remember, you're never alone unless you don't stand up. If you don't stand up, you'll be counted for sitting down. On this day, September 20th, September 1st, 1920, pardon me, a mass occupation movement started in which all the metalworking factories in Italy were occupied by their workers. A high point of the Biennia Rosso, of the near revolutionary upheaval which unfortunately culminated in uh, Benito Mussolini and the fascist party gaining power. On September 1st, 1939, almost 80 years ago, the first fighting of World War II took place as workers at the Polish post office of Danzig took up arms and attempted to repel the Nazi takeover. The workers repelled the first two attacks by German troops, backed up by police, SS, and SA volunteers, and pro-Nazi German locals. After 15 hours of fighting, the surviving employees surrendered to escape the now-burning building. As none of them were soldiers, they were tried as bandits, and executed. 
On this day, September 1st, 2007, documents were uncovered showing that Indian soldiers based in what is now Pakistan had chemical weapons tested on them by the British Colonial Administration in the 1930s and onwards. Large numbers of Indians suffered burns in the tests which were apparently carried out to see if mustard gas inflicted greater damage on Indian skin rather than white skin. Oh boy, a beautiful one there. Okay, it's almost time to get out of here. 11.36. Seattle Labor Corps. Oil for the world. for the world there by the uh, Seattle Labor Chorus. Let's go out with Tupac. Come on, come on. I see no changes. Wake up in the morning and I ask myself, is life worth living? Should I blast myself? I'm being poor and even worse, I'm black My stomach hurts, so I'm looking for a purse to snatch Cops give a damn about a Negro Pull a trigger, kill a he's a hero Get a to the kids who the hell care One less hungry mouth on the welfare First ship them dope and let them deal with brothers Give them guns, step back, watch them kill each other It's time to fight back, that's what Huey said Two shots in the dark, now Huey's dead I got love for my brothers, but we can never go nowhere Unless we share with each other We gotta start making changes Learn to see me as a brother instead of two distant strangers I was supposed to be How can the devil take a brother if he's close to me? Uh, I let it go back to when we played as kids But then it changed And that's the way it is Come on, come on That's just the way it is Things will never be the same That's just the way it is
racist faces Misplaced hate makes disgrace the racist We under, I wonder what it takes to make this One better place, let's erase the wasted Take the evil out the people, they'll be acting right It's both black and white, and smoke tonight And the only time we chill is when we kill each other It takes guilt to be real time to heal each other And although it seems evident, we ain't ready to see a black president uh, It ain't a secret or concealed a fact The penitentiary's packed and it's filled with blacks but some things will never change Try to show another way, but it's staying in the dope game Now tell me what's a mother to do Being real don't appeal to the brother in you You gotta operate the easy way I made a G today But you made it in a sleazy way Sell it back to the kid I gotta get paid But hey, well, that's the way it is Come on, come on That's just the way it is Things will never be the same That's just the way it is No changes, can a brother get a little peace? It's war on the streets and a war in the Middle East Instead of war on poverty, they got a war on drugs so the police can bother me And I ain't never did a crime I ain't have to do But now back with the facts, giving it back to you Don't let them jack you up, back you up, crack you up, and pip smack you up You gotta learn to hold your own, they get jealous when they see you with your mobile phone But tell the cops I can't touch this, I don't trust this When they try to rush, I bust this That's the sound number two, you say it ain't cool our favorite uh, conscientious objector from World War II, and we're going to ride him out of here. This is the theme. This is the Labor and Love Show, the show where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the negotiating table where you work, you're probably on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. When I say labor, I mean you. This is labor and love. Come on down to Mutiny Radio and get involved. Not more than just a radio station. We are a community arts center. Arts include 
Okay, that'll do it. We've done another Labor and Love show. And as usual, we're going to go out with Kerry Muraji. Okay? Hello to everybody out there. Everyone at the house. Selena, Kiki, Nepo. My better half, Sylvia. Vita. You all know who you are. Charlie, Vita, who makes me proud to be a dad every week. Brother Charlie, who got me started in this business. <laughs> business. Labor Day to everybody. Remember where you got that weekend. That weekend did not come about as a result of generosity by the part of employers and corporations. It came about because people fought for it. People rose up and demanded it. So while you're enjoying yourself on this three-day vacation, remember where it came from.
Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-face McRat. <laughs> Hey, Mutineers Stolowitz here. Have you ever listened to Labor and Love on Saturday mornings, 10 to noon, with Bill Morgan? It's a really excellent show, one of my favorites here at the station. And it's all about service. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but we got to serve somebody. And Bill understands the virtue of service as the heart and soul of the labor movement better than a lot of people I know. And it's one of the reasons I love to listen to him. He breaks down socialism, democracy, protest history, workers' news, and the power of unions. Along with that, he serves up a excellent mix of jazz latin gospel hip-hop and traditional folk ballads great stuff check it out labor and love is every saturday 10 a.m to 12 p.m serve somebody out at Mutiny Radio. Chester Cashcock here, giving you my love and regards as well as Moofy's over there. And you know, anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Bamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10. They have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission, where you can laugh off your tushy every Friday for a mere $10. And $10, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with, so to wipe it off, for <laughs> is in duty this. And if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, don't worry, don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer cottage on the mountain ridge for the kayaks. <laughs> Just go to podcast.pcrcollective.org or mutinyradio.fm podcasts and look for Comedy Clubhouse with a K. You can download it for free. 
But we'd love to see you every Friday, 8 to 10, down here at Mutiny Radio. Laugh off your tushy and save your life. Because you know what's better than laughter? Well, it's a cash cock, baby. (laughs) What could it be? It's exactly what you think it is. Flat. Black. Plastic. Vinyl. Records. Round. Played. Mixed. All for you every Saturday from noon to two by Scott Walker. Amazing artist. Music DJ. Vinyl enthusiast. That is flat black plastic. My name is Breakfast. And I'm running for Chancellor of the United States of America. For too long, we have gone without a Chancellor who is willing to take bold leaps of faith and logic to create new possibilities for our great, big, fat nation. As your Chancellor, I will balance the budget on the head of a pin, give entertaining speeches, have scandalous affairs, write strongly worded letters to unpopular foreign leaders, look good on camera, end all hunger, crime, abuse, war, disease, disasters, sadness, depression, oppression, repression, suppression, transgression, obsession, expression, impression, regression, and digression by signing pieces of paper that express my disapproval of such things. And invest in an American flag pin to be worn prominently on my stylish jackets. It's time to work together to take the country back from us and return it to ourselves. It's time to turn this country around and drive it into opposing traffic. It's time to take a chance on the Chancellor. I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on MutinyRadio.fm for... Let's watch a full-length movie on... YouTube. We watch the best movies that... uh, Aren't they good? Well, they're chosen by Uh, Here's his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch a full-length movie. Hey, comedy fans, don't miss Comedy Day Sunday, September 16th at Robin Williams Meadow in Golden Gate Park, noon till 5. It's free. You'll see 44 or more comedians. 44 comedians, 5 hours. That's over 8.5 comedians an hour. That's silly. Ever see a half a comedian? Yes, a half wit. Not funny, but Comedy Day will be a guaranteed laugh a minute. Let's see, a laugh a minute times 5 hours. That's 300 jokes. That's a lot of jokes, folks. <laughs> 
So why are these people laughing? I don't know. Maybe because they know Comedy Day will be better than the shoelaces of Madagascar exhibit. Better than the paperweight wares of the world convention. Better even than the alien sheep herding contest. And speaking of herding, heard any good ones lately? Okay, not funny again, but Comedy Day will be. Don't miss punchlines like these. A frog in a blender. In your hat. To keep his pants up. Comedy Day is worth the price of a mission because it's free. Nothing to buy. No operators waiting for your call. Void. We're prohibited by law. Comedy Day. Sunday, September 16th at Robin Williams Meadow in Golden Gate Park. It's free. Visit ComedyDay.org for complete details. Do you need an awesome and underground space for an event? Look no further than MutinyRadio.fm. Our 30-seat flexible space can accommodate your acoustic band, birthday party, comedy show, dance party, karaoke super fun, theater event, fundraiser. If you think it, we can do it. You run the door in promotion, we run the sound, space, and podcast. Rentals available Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday from 8 to 10 at Mutiny Radio FM's performance space at 2781 21st Street in the Deep Mission at 21st in Florida. Contact Pam at pamsidai at hotmail.com for more options and booking dates. Incredible socialist prices so you can be creative in a free speech space without breaking the bank. That's Mutiny Radio Rentals every Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday from 8 to 10. Book your event. Now. Trying to hurt me, but boy, how it burns me whenever she touched me. And oh, I feel so lucky. Oh. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be like in front of an audience? Like other than like squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to Joke Workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. <laughs> 